Welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. We are a Catholic young adult ministry located in Kansas City with a mission to be the community that inspires and forms our generation to be saints. In today's episode, we will feature a young adult from our community who will share how they encountered Jesus and how they strive towards sainthood in their everyday life. Hopefully, this will encourage you in your pursuit of everyday holiness. Thanks for joining in on this episode of City on a Hill. Welcome back to another episode of the City on a Hill podcast, where we interview Catholic young adults in the Kansas City metro area and slightly beyond, as is the case today, um, to get their stories of faith. Uh, I am your host today, Father Andrew Mattingly, Director and Chaplain of City on a Hill, and I'm joined by my somewhat recent but (laughs) developing as good friends, John Michael and Emily Lucido. So welcome, you guys. Thank you. Thank you very much, Father. Yeah, great to, great to have you on this early Friday morning up from uh, from Lawrence. And uh, the sun is shining through our office uh, sort of ramshackle uh, studio here. Now, this is, and, this is uh, legit. I have uh, – I can see Father Mattingly's bed from me. Uh-oh. And that is just a very interesting thing. It is made. I would just like to – Make it very clear to all the listeners. <laughs> Beautifully made. You could bounce a quarter off that thing. Is that the goal when you make your bed? That, uh, well, actually, you know, just I just finished a book over Christmas break called Make Your Bed by Admiral... You remember the guy's name? No, I don't. I don't Admiral remember. something. Oh, is this a, the guy who gave this like commencement speech yes. about making your bed? Nice. I, and I, I usually don't like to read anything from people that have graduated from the University of Texas. <laughs> because oh. me me and my wife, Emily, yeah, yeah, yeah. we both graduated from Texas A&M, big rivalry there. Yeah. But he wrote a whole book called Make Your Bed. Nice. And there's a whole chapter on making your bed, the proper technique that he learned at Navy SEAL basic training. And I happily report that in our marriage, Emily is closer to Navy SEAL quality bed making than I am. <laughs> I was kind of, I didn't really know what you were going to say for a second. <laughs> Emily, like, Emily makes a great bed. bed. <laughs> nice. Most of the time. I've grown in it. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember it was three or four years ago when that, that uh, was getting bounced around yep. the, the interwebs, his, uh, his commencement speech. is yep. like more or less like if you don't do anything else in life. Or, or during your day, at least you can come home and you exactly. <laughs> you accomplish something, you know. And, it, and let me let me tell you this, Emily. I don't know if you noticed this about Father Mattingly's bed, but oh did you God. notice how many pillows? How many pillows are on the bed? No, I did not. There is one small pillow. That's <laughs> all you need. That's all you need. What? No, I have two regular well, you, you size ones. You have the two regular ones, and then you have the one tiny throw pillow. Yeah, which yeah. is just have, which is great. He does have a throw pillow, though. Because how many pillows do we have on our bed right now? <laughs> right is, right now at this moment, how many do we have? This conversation isn't really fair because I'm pregnant right now. And <laughs> I feel bad for John Michael. I do. I really feel bad. But I just need a lot more support. So I sleep with like three to four pillows at night. So I feel like awesome. it doesn't. I don't feel like this it counts. That's true. So, I mean, I'm we not do have a to... lot of pillows on the bed right now. That's hilarious. That makes me think of. Um, there's been a watched a little bit of football mm. over the Thanksgiving Christmas season, and there's been a progressive commercial. Yes, where they're they're yes. making fun of like uh, don't become your parents, it's basically. So funny. And one, one of them I thought was hilarious. This guy like 
walks into her house and the, the whole couch, there's nowhere to sit on the couch. Right. It's just all pillows. Right. And he's like, he's like, look, she's just kind of standing off to the side, you know, someone in her thirties. She's like, look, he, he says to her, where, where am I supposed to sit? Like, there's no room on this. Let's, okay, let's get rid of some of these. But he starts throwing them off and she's just like, she doesn't know what to do with her hands. Exactly. She's just like, what do you like? Exactly. <laughs> I would I would awesome. love to hear if there are any male podcast listeners mm. that are team throw pillow. If there are any on there, please comment <laughs> on this podcast episode because I would love to find one man in the world who believes in throw pillows. I think people can appreciate them. But their functionality. There's no functionality. <laughs> We're called to a life of, of evangelical poverty. And I, I think that throw pillows are a contradiction to that. <laughs> I will say, in defense of um, throw pillows on couches, somebody gave me a cool like nap hack recently. Huh, okay. Where and I guess regular night sleep hack, but apparently if you sleep on your side, which supposedly is like the best position mm. for your whatever spine and stuff, if you put a pillow like between your knees or your thighs. It like it straightens your back, right? Yeah, and it's just I don't know easier to get comfortable. Mm. And I've been doing that for like I like to take naps on couches, mm. do like a little power nap after lunch every day for twenty minutes. And man, the pillow between the knees or the that, like it really works. Wow. So try it out. I can confirm this. This is yeah. one of the uses for my mini pillows right now. <laughs> so not to not to give listeners too too much information, but like I said, Emily's pregnant. <laughs> And um, she uses a lot of pillows. And recently, there is there has been a line of pillows down the middle of the bed, so that she has it behind her back, so she she can oh, sleep yeah. on her side. Oh yeah. But it it really portions the bed into two sides, <laughs> as if that wasn't clear enough. It's like the Great That's Wall hilarious. of Pillows. That's and if hilarious. I wanted to cuddle, I I can't because I can't get over the pillow. <laughs> yeah. You've been shunned. Oh, that's great. Well, that's where the celibate life comes in handy. Right, there, it is, there it is. I can have all the pillows to myself. That's right. I don't have to share anything. 100%. <laughs> celibate life equals the selfish life. That's right. <laughs> oh. Well, let's, let's start. Let's, uh, that was some good, that was some good introductory banter. It's good, good banter. job, guys. Team banter. Um, yeah. Um, so I don't know which of you wants to go first and share in your testimony. Joe Michael definitely does. Okay. Okay, great. Let's hear it, man. I will try to keep it under 45 minutes to an hour, 15. <laughs> Usually I, I have a timer when I tell my testimony oh, yeah? because long story long is normally sort of the, the way that I tell my testimony, but we'll, we'll keep it down to about five to 10 minutes. Okay, great. Um, so I don't know if, if either of you guys have ever been to summer camp before. Oh, yeah. Which summer camp did you go to? Uh, Boy Scout camp. Boy Scout camp. times mm -hmm. growing up. And uh, did I go to anything? No, pretty much that. Pretty yeah. much that. Mm -hmm. So I grew up going to uh, a small Catholic camp down in, in East Texas, uh, the Piney Woods called the Pines Catholic Camp. It's a great camp and was one of my favorite places growing up. And every summer I would go down there and my favorite part of – the week was Friday afternoons, which was the big camper on camper tug of war game. Nice. So much fun. And then it would always finish with all the counselors on one side and all the campers on the other to see who could win. And, uh, of course, you know, being the, the 
five foot two, a hundred pound high schooler that I was, <laughs> I was never very good at it. Um, however, when I look back at that, I see that tug of war as a game sort of describes my walk and my journey, hmm. um, with our Lord. And, you know, at different times of my life, I've realized that I have been pulling hmm. and God has also been pulling hmm. and I've been fighting him for years and years and years. And he tries to pull me over to his side and I'm pulling back when what I really need to do is just let go. And and let him pull me over to his side. Um, so that's the way I, I really enjoy starting my testimony because I think it articulates the different ways in which God has sought to pull me onto his side, mm. which has been the graces and the sacraments and the role models and the disciplers that I've had. But then there's also the sins and um, things that I have chosen to pull back and to, to not allow God to yank me onto his side. So, you know, all of our, all of our testimonies are, um, singular in that they're all different, but at the end of the day, all of our testimonies are, are one in the same, which is, are we just going to let God pull us onto his side or how many times does it take of us pulling before he actually wins? Mm -hmm. So the, the details are different, but hopefully the threads will be the same for, for all of our, all of our listeners. Um, I, I, I'll start off, uh, really in high school. So my, my dad, um, was a, a very great athlete. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and, and my dad actually went to the same high school as me, Dallas Jesuit. And he was a stud athlete at Dallas Jesuit back in the eighties and quarterback of the football team, shortstop of the baseball team, point guard of the basketball team, um, ended up going on to play college baseball and just being very successful as an athlete. And these are that's really my first memories of feeling a sort of insecurity hmm. or feeling as if I wasn't pleasing to someone. Hmm. So it all really started when I went to Jesuit. My my name's John Michael, my dad's name is Michael, and we look very similar. Hmm. So starting off at Jesuit, people always knew me first off as Michael's son. And, oh, John Michael, like, you know, your dad was one of the greatest athletes to ever walk through the halls of Jesuit. <laughs> and I mean, I was good, but I was not nearly that good. Yeah. And to make matters worse, there was a huge picture of my dad framed in the main hallway. <laughs> um, where When he got inducted into the Sports Hall of Fame um, at Jesuit. So just a, a big shoes to fill. And I was not able to to live up to those. And so really, you know, as I grew into or as I began to discover who I was as a man uh, in high school, that discovery was full of of great self-condemnation hmm. and, you know, feeling as if I'm not living up to others' expectations, specifically athletically. Hmm. And, you know, that was 14, 15, 16 and I finally realized that, you know, maybe baseball just, just isn't it for me. Maybe that's not the way that I'm going to gain other people's affirmation. And so then I, I switched to, well, maybe I have a good personality. Maybe I can switch to actually just gaining people's affirmation by, by being very likable, being um, the center of, of attention, being the, the life of the party, um, things like that. And because I was so desperate for affirmation from other people, 
um, I would do anything to, to gain that affirmation. Hmm. And so I, I did fall into to sins of drunkenness and lust. However, the sins of drunkenness and lust were not the particular issue. Hmm. The particular issue was that I cared so deeply about what other people thought of me. Hmm. My identity was firmly placed in what others said about me. Yeah. And if they said, you know, if it, if it took doing something that I did not agree with, to gain that identity in someone's eyes that I was likable, uh, that I was invited, that I was good enough, um, that I was loved, I would do it. Yeah. And so, of course, when when you lose your identity, our identity defines our action. And so my actions were were all over the map. So that, that led me to uh, graduating high school and I wanted to go to a big state school. I wanted to have the the promise of a, a great college experience, football games, parties, tailgates. And so I, I went and took my talents to Texas A&M University <laughs> in College Station, Texas. Um, mm. And Is it, by the way, just interrupting, is it literally called College Station just because there's a college there? Like, how did I get that name? So if we want to keep the podcast another two hours. <laughs> Sorry, I, I I've always wondered that. It's actually a stop on the Trans-Pacific Rail, Railroad line way back in the day. Okay. okay. Before there, or excuse me, while there was a college there. Okay. And so um, they actually just named it College Station because it was the stop on the rail line huh. where college students would get off to attend Interesting. Texas at that time, Texas A&M. Okay. And so okay. they're still, yeah, go ahead. I'm just laughing because I literally went to this school for four and a half years and I, I, I didn't know this till like two weeks ago. Nice. <laughs> it's a fun fact to pull out your hat. Absolutely. Anyways, yes. College yeah. Station, Texas. So I, I went to A&M and once again, that, that just deep desire to be affirmed was mm. so deep. And so for me, that looked like, how am I going to gain that affirmation that I desperately mm. need to make myself feel loved? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to go ahead and, and join a fraternity and get very involved on campus. Mm-hmm. Because if I can just get enough people to like me, maybe I'll begin to actually like myself. Hmm. Maybe I'll begin to actually find myself lovable. And hmm. maybe I'll begin to put off the shame and the guilt that I have constantly carried that says I'm not good enough mm-hmm. or I'm not capable of being loved. I'm not capable of living up to my dad's expectations. I'm not capable of of really being anything to anyone. And so once again, same story, different verse. When your identity is placed in the opinion of others, Mm -hmm. your actions follow. Um, And so I I actually ended up at the end of my freshman year of college, uh, flunking out of Texas A&M. Emily remembers that well. Me and Emily actually met at the very beginning of our freshman year. She was in a sorority. I was in a fraternity. And we kind of met through the, the Greek sort of connections and system at A&M. We were dating at the time um, and I failed out of college. She broke up with me That's true. and I moved, uh, <laughs> moved back to Dallas to live with my parents. So I was going to community college, living with my parents, eating my mom's grilled chicken every night once again, and uh, was living the dream. And that's when I finally came to this realization, this recognition that I could for the rest of my life, live for the opinion of others. I could. Mm-hmm. And maybe I would get it at some points. Maybe I wouldn't. But I would be constantly chasing the opinion of others and it would leave me how I felt at that moment of flunking out. 
unloved, unrecognized, forgotten about. Because when I flunked out of college, no one remembered me. The same guys that were my best friends, once I flunked out, they didn't call me. The same girlfriend, Emily, that Hmm. I had broke up with me. She didn't think about me. Actually, she did. We'll touch on that later. (laughs) But that's what I thought. And so putting my identity in the opinion of others left me feeling exactly how I didn't want to feel, unloved, unchosen, and desperate for affirmation. Luckily, my freshman year, I had uh, run into a focus missionary named John Merkel and had gotten to know John a little bit through a Bible study that I was in. And when I flunked out of college, um, I thought that John would forget about me too. Hmm. And as I went back to Dallas, the exact opposite happened. John remembered me. And me and John would talk on the phone every week. And John was still a focused missionary, um, which was impressive to me because I was not at his school. I was not. Hmm. He couldn't put me in his database as a number he was reaching. He was doing this out of out of pure desire hmm. for me to know God. And so we'd speak every week. And he, we started a, a discipleship relationship over the phone. And he encouraged me to place that desire for affirmation in the truth of of who God the Father says that I am. And it was during that time um, that I began to pray for the first time. And the prayer for me was getting to know someone who gives me identity. And, And you'll see the common theme for me is identity if it isn't clear already. And John pointed me to Matthew chapter 3 the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan Mm. where Jesus is baptized. And it says, lo, a voice from heaven came down and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I also love Mark's account of that story, which is Mark chapter one, uh, verse 10 through 16. He speaks in the, the God, the father speaks in the first person. And he says, you are my beloved Mm. son with you. I am well pleased, which is, has a more personal feel. And it was that truth, um, while flunked out of college, while feeling as if there's no way I could be loved, Mm -hmm. there's no way I could achieve success in this world. It was that truth that I was a beloved son with whom the father's pleased that shattered that desperate plea for affirmation from everyone else. Because if God, the father can look at me and say that I'm a beloved son with whom he's well pleased, then I can do anything because I don't have to earn love from others because I don't have to earn the identity that I've received from him. Mm -hmm. And that was the time in my life where I really gave my life to Christ. And, and it was powerful. The grace of 18 years, 19 years of receiving the sacraments Hmm. just went off like fireworks in my heart. Prayer was easy. It was fun. It was amazing. Daily communion, um, the rosary, learning the saints, it was like everything I'd ever learned, the catechesis I'd received, all of a sudden was kindling. They threw gasoline in and it just exploded into amazing fire. Um, so, you know, at that point I thought, oh, my life is going to be perfect. I'll never have to suffer again. Hmm. I'll never have to fail again because I got my identity and it's awesome. Um, and I was wrong. And I, I look back at the the parable of the of the sower, mm. and I see myself that that seed was planted at that time, but there were still boulders and thorns that needed to be taken out. 
And so that really describes the next sort of two to three years of my life. I, I ended up getting back into A&M. I ended up getting back together with my ex-girlfriend, now wife, Emily. Ex-girlfriend, um, now wife. But there were still so <laughs> many parts of my heart where Christ wanted to go in and to remove those boulders, remove those thorns that were keeping me from fully accepting that identity in mm-hmm. a deeper way. Mm-hmm. Um, and And I would really say that that has been my experience since that conversion moment is that life with Christ is an amazing adventure, but an adventure is filled with twists and turns and hardships and graces. And that's really been the past four to five years since my conversion. And now as a married man, as a a Catholic missionary serving with focus, now as a father, um, you know, those same that same desire for affirmation still comes. Mm-hmm. I want to perform well so that others tell me I'm a good missionary. I want to um, love my wife well so that she tells me that I'm a good husband. But I just have to continue to go back to that identity that I'm a beloved son with whom the Father's well pleased anytime I'm tempted mm-hmm. to place my identity in something else. And I think it is that beloved sonship that was the final tug that pulled me onto God's side. And it's been the thing that's kept me on his side since then. So like I said, long story long, um, (laughs) but that's how God has used me. Yeah. I can't wait to see what happens. Dude, that's great, man. Thanks for sharing. That wasn't long at all. (laughs) We've had, we've had like an hour and a half episodes. So I could have told you that when we started. That's uh, (laughs) It's all right. Better about ourselves. Right? It does, yeah. Thank <laughs> no, no, no. Let me let me ask you some questions mm-hmm. though. Um, so, like, within your family, I guess were you the first one to have some sort of, you know, significant encounter with the Lord, where just everything changed, or kind of how did this impact family life and maybe circles of friends and absolutely other things? That's a great question. Um, so my family is uh, Italian Catholic. So we love red wine, marinara sauce, and the rosary. Awesome. <laughs> Imagine like my big fat Greek wedding, but the Italian version. That is literally his family. That's it. Sweet. When when So Emily, as the viewers, they can't see, she has partially blonde hair. And when Emily came in for the first time to my family, my grandmother walked over and said, Oh, Lordy. Is she a blonde? <laughs> because every everyone confirm. in my family has very everyone has dark hair, Italian, and she just That's could hilarious. not believe that there was a blonde-haired woman that walked in the house. That's hilarious. Um, so yes, um, you know, Catholicism was was just that it was part of our life mm-hmm. at that point mm-hmm. for my family, for my grandparents, for my immediate family of my my yeah. mom and dad. Um, Catholicism was like being Republican. It's important and it's something you identify <laughs> with, um, but it's equal to your job. It's equal to your family. It's equal to your devotion to your favorite yeah. sports team. Uh-huh. It was one of the pieces of the pie. Yep. And so I think what was difficult for my parents to understand after um, just this overpouring of grace, mm-hmm. after meeting Christ in a profound way, was that I was trying to live contrary to that which was hmm. that Christ was the center yeah um, that he was a hundred percent of the pie mm-hmm. and everything flowed from that yeah your political views your um, 
the way the way you got married, the family you raised, everything came from and over and and flowed out of that relationship with the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. That was very hard for them to understand. Hmm. Um as far as friends go, you know, I don't know I don't know what they thought. I think they thought he's crazy, <laughs> honestly. Really? Um Did you I mean did you go like you're talking about high school friends? High school and college friends. And college friends. Um most of my friends in college were either non practicing Catholics yeah. or practicing Protestants, Christians. Uh-huh. Um, and so the non Catholics thought I was crazy because I had a relationship with, you know, Christ yeah. as a person, as a yeah. someone who's living, breathing, moving. The Protestants who I was friends with who were practicing thought I was crazy. Um you know, because I had a statue of Mary in my room yeah. and I prayed this all day before bed and yeah. things like that. Yeah. That was hard. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Um, have any of them since like, was that, I guess, a moment where they all kind of, most of those friends drifted away or have any of them also kind of caught, you know, faith in a, in a personal bug. relationship? Yeah. Since then? <laughs> yes and no. Yeah. Um, Looking back on, you know, fraternity brothers, friends from college, I think, yeah, there is, some of them have. So, yeah. you know, in in Focus, which is, once again, the organization that we work for, um, we talk about that there's really two big conversion moments. So there's the conversion to Christ, mm-hmm. which is important and can be found throughout the Bible as probably... The best example could be the calling of the disciples, um, Matthew 4, Luke 5, whatever you want to refer to, Mm -hmm. that Jesus calls the disciples to follow them. But then there's the second great conversion, which is the conversion to mission, Mm -hmm. which we can find in uh, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Mm -hmm. um, or Acts chapter 2, things like that, where the disciples are called to then go out. And so I think... um, when I when I had that first conversion, it was a private conversion. It was something mm. that was personal. Yeah. Then I had the second conversion, mm. and I had that great desire to go and share yeah. that first conversion with others. Mm-hmm. As as the woman at the well says, "Come and see the man who's told me all the things that I've done." Yeah. And that was the spirit that I carried to my friends, and and I saw people, I saw lives changed as a college student yeah. by sharing that with friends i started walking with guys yeah. uh, in my fraternity and outside of um and watched real transformation mm. um i sponsored a guy into the catholic church my senior year of college awesome um i discipled two men i led a bible study for a group of 10 dudes for two years and just watched that same transformation happen to them in its own way yeah but that same powerful moments of, of interior conversion. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Let me, um, switch gears to somewhat of a, I guess a practical question. So you've done a lot of, is this your third year as a focus mission? Third year. Yeah. So you've, you've done a lot of work kind of trying to reach young men, you know, college, college age guys. Mm -hmm. What would you say? I mean, there's probably a number of listeners who are kind of thinking of themselves like, yeah, I would love to reach my brother, Mm -hmm. my son, my friend, like coworker, like when it comes to, you know, reaching out to men in particular and kind of drawing them in, attracting them to the Lord. Um, I don't know. Do you have any sort of 
I don't want to call them tic- tips or tricks <laughs> sure. because obviously the, the Lord's grace is much deeper than that. But yep. but like, what would you say is sort of, I don't know, the the crux of of, of reaching men? Sure. Mm, good question. I think there's a I think there's two, and I, I want to share those two um, through a short antidote about my brother. Anecdote. Anecdote. What did I say? <laughs> antidote. Antidote. Like a vaccine. <laughs> Hot topic right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so an, an antidote. An anecdote. An anecdote. Yes, yes, yes. There you go. Nice. There you go. Nice. So my brother is an 18 year old, um, actually 19 year old freshman at the University of Arkansas. Okay. He's a freshman, joined fraternity, raised Catholic, just like me, very similar stories. And he's probably the person in my life that I want to come to know God the most. Hmm. Um, but you know, I think the, the two things I want to share when I was back at home, me and my brother spent an amazing amount of time together. And I Mm -hmm. think that's the first thing. And it sounds, it sounds very simple, but it's very hard to do. Um, a a word that's thrown around sometimes that we use is a scandalous amount of time. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's necessarily the Mm -hmm. right word, but it might articulate what we mean by an amazing amount of time. Yeah. It takes men in this world so long to trust another man, yeah. a very long time. It's yeah. not something that you can build in hmm. one week, two weeks, yeah. one conversation, two conversations. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time. Yeah. And because men of our generation are inherently distrustful of other men, yeah, we've been put down, we've been made fun of, we've yeah. been roasted, we've been told we're small, that we're not enough in the eyes of our fellow brothers. And to think that you could just win over a man's trust and heal those lifetime of wounds over one coffee date, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, to show up in a man's life time and time again, I think that's the biggest hmm. key. Hmm. That's great. I, yeah, can resonate with that a lot. What, and what would you say as my next follow-up to that? Well, f- well, let me back up a second. Just... I'm going to affirm that and say also in the young adult world, of mm-hmm. course, yep. um, that challenge becomes amplified Absolutely. because uh, outside of a college campus where you encounter people all the time, right. in, the, in the real world, it's sort of like, well, I'm, I might, unless I live with somebody, I'm like roommates with them or they live down the block. It's sort of like I might see them if I'm super intentional once a week. Absolutely. If I'm not intentional, months could go by. And so like the idea of okay, like if I really want to, if I really love this person, I want to bring this guy to the Lord, like it's going to, it's going to, I can't put a cap or a limit on sort of how long it might take or whatever. But, um, but yeah, my next question would be, so when I look at the men I know who other men trust Mm -hmm. and who they, uh, to whom they bring significant things in their life, um, I see that some guys elicit trust more quickly um, than, than others. Mm. What would you say is sort of the quickest way or the best way to make it so that you yourself as a man, um, attract the trust of another guy? Absolutely. That's a good question. That's a very good question. I think the men that I know who merit my respect and merit my trust and merit my vulnerability and that I feel safe sharing with yeah. Are men who are who have led with their own vulnerability first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So mm. we cannot expect, and, and women, I think as well, but definitely men, Yeah, we cannot expect a man to open up to us without us first cracking it way open Yeah, and sharing first ourselves. And the, the image that I like to use is um, that you can only expect a man's vulnerability, the level to which he's sharing, he's only going to meet some of how vulnerable you are. Hmm. So if you're sharing at a, you know, at a 70% vulnerability level, (laughs) he might share at a 25%. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want him to be at a 50, you share at a hundred. And once again, obviously there's prudence with that and you're not just going around, you know, (laughs) telling everything about yourself to every guy. Yeah. But at the same time, you can only expect a man to be as vulnerable with you as much as you have been vulnerable with him in yeah. the past. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's huge and it's, it's hard to do. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it absolutely has to happen. Yeah. That's great. I couldn't agree with that more. It's kind of, I feel like, um, as a priest, I can get kind of an easy pass because mm-hmm. obviously like with confession and stuff, right. people yeah. just sort of come and they just spill their guts right. and they you don't, you don't have to it. share anything, <laughs> you know, and it's kind of, uh, it's a, pr- a privileged position, but, but, um, but obviously that's, that's not, that by itself isn't enough for man or woman to, to lead a totally fulfilling life. Mm-hmm. We need those vulnerable relationships outside of that. But, um, can I just add one last thing? Oh yeah. Yeah, please. <laughs> there's a, th- there's an idea that I've been kind of obsessed with and Emily's, <laughs> Emily's going to roll her eyes cause she's heard it <laughs> 10 or 15 times. But, um, you know, all the time, Father, we hear about there's no men in the church. Hmm. Where's the men? Yeah. You know, we got 70 women here. We got 20 dudes. Yeah. When are the men going to step up? Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of me understands that sentiment. I really do. But also, if you look back at the history of the church, it's always been that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's always been more women than men. Mm-hmm. You look at the cross. You look at um, those who followed Jesus, majority of which were women. Mm-hmm. And then you had a couple strong men. Mm-hmm. And so what I like to tell men is, and I, I have to believe this myself on the college campus, is we might have, we might not have as many men in the church that there are women, mm-hmm. but can we take the men that we do have and make them just warriors, hmm. make them hmm. saints, make them yeah. stand out. Yeah. And the idea that I like to use when we're trying to bring more men into the church Yeah is we need to be, as the men in the church, myself and you, uh, pace setters. Hmm. So Here we go. Here we go. (laughs) This is the concept. This is the concept. Pace setting. This is it. So there's a guy named Elliot Kumjagi. He's a Kenyan long distance runner. Wait, is this the guy that cracked the two-hour barrier? Oh, wow. I heard about him the other day. First person in the history of the world to ever crack a two-hour marathon. Did it in one hour, 59 minutes, and 47 seconds. That's insane. Never been done before. Some people say it never will happen again. It's amazing what he did, yeah. but it's actually not. The whole reason he was able to do it was <laughs> I because- I disagree with you, but continue on. <laughs> it was impressive. It was objectively impressive. Yeah. But what's what's an even better story is yeah. his pace setters. Huh. He had a group of 25 Olympic marathoners hmm. that were pace setting him at all times. So he wow. had- Six guys shaped in a diamond around him throughout the 26.2 miles yeah. that were keeping pace and wow. would run every two miles. 
Yeah. So every two miles, a new guy would jump in and yep. help pace him. Wow. Seven guys constantly around him. Wow. And so what Elliot Kimjagi knew is something that we fail to remember in the Catholic Church is that mm. if we're going to run a fast race, yeah. we need a good pace setter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And me and you as men who are established in the church are called to be those pace setters. Yeah. If we're running a, if we want him to run a nine minute mile, yeah, we need to be running a seven minute mile. If we want him to lift 150 pounds in the weight room, we need to be running, putting up 250. Yeah. Obviously, I'm not talking about sports. I'm talking about the spiritual life. Yeah. If we're trying to encourage someone to pray 15 minutes a day, you better be praying at least an hour, 45 minutes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We can't call someone, especially men, to something that we ourselves aren't doing more of and aren't doing well. Yeah. That's the pace setter. That's, that's that's my that's, tan- that's my big thing right now. That's great. <laughs> and now that that gets me thinking about other things. So we'll we'll get to your story eventually. And we'll, don't worry. <laughs> we, need don't to, worry. <laughs> we need to hear the better half speak. <laughs> but but maybe maybe just one last observation sure. and and question. Um, what the observation would be? It does seem when you look at church history that like the movements of saintly men in the church all begin with like either one or a handful of men that are usually a handful that are these pace setters you're talking about. Cause like Absolutely. Yeah. it is possible to get huge numbers of men kind of on board to real sanctity and like mission. So like, you know, you think of classic example of like Ignatius of Loyola, just, just a man among men with his cohort of uh, the, the other six guys that founded the Jesuits, two others of which are saints now as well. And like, by the time he died, 30-some years later, there were 10,000 of these guys around the world. Yep. And so, like, it – so that's an observation, and that that's happened, obviously, all the time throughout church history, this sort of small band of brothers, if you will, that it, that grows. Yep. And I guess the question that comes from that – I'd be interested to get both of your takes on this. Um, do you think that um, men – are naturally inclined to have a greater need to have like somebody to follow mm-hmm. to achieve great holiness than women mm-hmm. or women because of the what some people will describe as sort of like the natural feminine draw to religiosity mm-hmm. due to the sort of receptive nature of women and so on like do do men require i don't know somebody they know in particular mm-hmm. a, a pastor a a, a friend like to really like latch onto. Does that make sense? Yep. I don't know. Or is it the same? Let's talk. Let's talk. I need to talk about through this kind of, I feel like it's a really good question. I think that, I think that perhaps may be true for the first conversion. And this is what I mean by that. I think hmm. a woman, and this is a broad generalization, there are, yeah, it's a very nuanced, <laughs> obviously there are very nuanced examples, but I think in general, women would perhaps be more likely because of the natural receptivity and um, devotion to our Lord that I think is inherent in the woman to maybe have that first conversion to, to like coming to know Christ, to come to yeah. know Christ. Mm-hmm. I don't know necessarily if all mm-hmm. the time they need someone to help them with that. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I think that like women are just so inclined to relationships so naturally that, you know, even in 
an unhealthy state Mm. of living, women are still going to desire relationship and even deep relationship. Whereas men, I don't, again, speaking generally in from maybe what I've seen on the college campus, like they're, they're not as inclined toward that. So I think there is a level that, um, women, women are just so desirous of relationship. You know, I'm speaking generally here, but I think that that does naturally draw women into relationship with Christ, that first conversion of coming to know the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that there is that natural draw that women have for coming to know Christ. But I do think that this second conversion we're mm-hmm. speaking of this, um, yeah, a desire to go mm-hmm. on mission, a desire to bring, yeah, just a desire to bring other mm-hmm. people alongside them to heaven um, for others to know Christ. I do think that that takes someone modeling it, you know, like it it takes Hmm. someone showing them like, yeah, this is how you can like be, befriend someone and share Christ with them. This is how to lead a Bible study. This is how to just like spend time with people. Um, and those seem like obvious things, but I think when you're kind of in that place, it like you need someone to lead you. And I think that is universal is this idea. I mean, it's just the idea of discipleship really is that, you know, Jesus disciples us mm-hmm. and like we're called, we're called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. But then in another way, like there are men and women in our life that the Lord has given us that we can follow in yeah. the way that they're following Christ. And I think that's, you know, there's a universality between men and women needing yep. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially in regard to the way that they live mission and hmm. yes, John Michael. Hmm. I was just thinking of a good biblical <laughs> example to bring this up. So John chapter 20 and 21 too, I think, um, where Mary Magdalene goes to the temple. She has this natural inclination to go see our Lord, yeah. which is inherent in the heart of a, of a woman. Yeah. She, she articulates the feminine heart really well in that You mean moment. going to the tomb? I'm sorry, what did I say? You said the temple. temple. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> also a temple. True. But The living temple. <laughs> but tomb. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> going yes. to see the tomb. Yeah. And once again, I think that's yeah. a great example, a natural hmm. feminine desire to be with our Lord. But then yeah. what happens? Jesus says, go and tell them I'm, I'm alive. Go yeah. and tell the disciples. Yeah. Right? She wasn't going to do that on her own. Hmm. He had to give her that that moment, that encouragement, and hmm. go and tell. Yeah. Go on mission. And she does. And she does it beautifully. She does it well. Yeah. So I think hmm. that that's a good perhaps yeah, yeah. could articulate that. that. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. a good image. That's a good image. Yeah. I agree. Thanks for weighing in on those those things. That's great. It's a good This is and we, we could talk all day. Yeah, I should really have could. I should have asked you before we started, do you just have to go sometime? I mean, oh. <laughs> maybe in the next 30 That's, minutes. Yeah. Our daughter's at home. Oh, yeah. Being watched by a very dear friend, but you know. Okay, great. Got to respect the time of others. Yeah, probably. We probably have 30 minutes okay. to leave. Okay, sweet. Okay. Emily, Emily, le- le- fire away. Tell oh, us my, your story. My story. Yes. Um. Well, I think, I think for a while I used to kind of, yeah, compare my story to John Michael's, his, in the sense of, I mean, he's my husband, so, you know, most close friend in that, most clo- like my closest friend, um, just in the sense of, I was like, well, my, my conversion and my story looks, it just looks a lot different. There wasn't really a moment of, um, like this moment of turning, you know, um, for me, like turning from something to another. 
So I think that for a lot of people, that's the case and they feel kind of weird about it, you know? Hmm. Um, but I think I, I like to describe my my story as just a journey. Like it's just been a journey the whole time with Jesus and um, the times that I was without him and with him. But I, I don't think necessarily there was like this huge pre-conversion and then conversion moment for me. I grew up in Bible Belt, Texas, in East Texas, and um, was the oldest and really loved my family a lot. And my family really shaped me a ton, um, just who I am and my desires. And um, But I was always very insecure. Like, I just, I never remember a time in my life where I wasn't just like, I didn't have some kind of insecurity about who I was Mm -hmm. like, so I have like really early memories in school, just like not feeling so uncertain of myself. And I definitely think that's kind of like the theme, uh, like what Jesus wants to continue to save me from and like has saved me from is just like who, the way that I see myself and who I think I am. And I mean, yeah, my identity, like John Michael was talking about, but in kind of a different way. So, um, I struggled a lot with body insecurity and body image in high school and um, just like really disliking myself, Um, disliking my body and disliking my personality and just like had a lot of Mm -hmm. self condemnation and self hatred for myself. And so um, by the grace of God, I, um, I started medication for depression and that really helped me in high school. Um, I was really depressed and, um, I wanted all the while I like wanted to know God and everyone thought of me and saw me as like this good, the good Christian girl. Um, because I grew up in a, I don't know if I said this, I grew up in a Protestant house and, um, Mm -hmm. went to a private Christian school and was very much looked at as like, Emily, you know, she's just the good Christian girl. She just does everything right. But interiorly, I just, I like really didn't like myself at all. And, um, I wanted to, like I wanted to be this good Christian girl so that I would feel secure in who I was. Um, I felt like that was the sense of self I was chasing at the time. Um, and so I had, there was a moment though, whenever I was, uh, I was working at a camp before I went to college and someone asked me the question, Emily, do you even know the gospel? And like the the idea of the gospel is, was just so central to my, what I thought, I I thought it was so central to my life, like growing up in this really Christian household. And I was like, so offended that someone would ask me that it really (laughs) shook me up. Um, no one had ever like challenged me in that way before. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I like, it was kind of the first time that I like these, I, I realized this duality of like, wow, I have all these feelings of self condemnation and self dislike. And yet I'm like, I just live, I just live for other people. Like I just want to, I I want to show myself as this like perfect Christian girl, but I like actually don't yet. Like, do I actually know Jesus? Hmm. Um, and I really didn't. And that really, like that really shook me up. Hmm. And I, um, Hmm. so then when I entered college, I really, that was like a great desire of mine was to really begin to shed those, um, false images I had of myself and really come to know Christ. And so my freshman year, I like really dove into my faith. I was like, 
I went to a great Protestant church in College Station. I was at Texas A&M too. And um, really, yeah, like I just really desired to know Jesus. And I really began to taste freedom for the first time as I let go of um, these images that I had put up as like the person that I needed to be like this perfect person. And um, yeah, just like letting go of a lot of perfectionistic habits and ideals that I had for myself. And that was just like a really beautiful time um, of like tasting freedom for the first time of really recognizing that Jesus wanted to know me and he could, he could tell me who I was. Um, and I could really have a relationship with him that really actually would change my life instead of this, like, just like false religion that I had kind of been living with just of like, I'm just going to do things and that's, what's going to make me good. And, um, so my freshman year, I met this really, um, big personality, dark curly hair guy. And I just was like, oh that's my. me. <laughs> yes. For those that don't know Joe Michael, he does have dark curly hair and a big personality. And, um, I was like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? I just was like, pre- I was pretty enamored by him right away. Um, and we ended up dating part of our freshman year, like John Michael mentioned earlier. And, um, I just had never felt like that kind of hole that was still like, it's not like it just takes time to heal those wounds of years of like, um, self dislike. And so that kind of place in myself of like, yeah, I actually don't know the way I feel about myself. I actually don't know if I like myself. It still existed in some ways. And so I think that when I began dating John Michael, I was like, I've just never felt, oh my gosh, I've never felt so like chosen by someone before. Hmm. And, um, like I was so drawn to that in him and in a pure way and also in a impure way, like the pure way of he really did care about me and in an impure way of like I was using him, you know, mm. to feel chosen and loved and special. So we dated our freshman year. It wasn't a great relationship. I mean, <laughs> it was just an immature freshman <laughs> relationship. We were 18. <laughs> like it was just not, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and so, um, John Michael failed out of school. My parents were like, oh my gosh. I mean, <laughs> this is what I'm sure they were thinking. Oh my gosh, our 18 year old girl who's been like the apple of our eye, like this is dating this college dropout. Like, <laughs> and I ended up, I, I like, I had been walking with Christ and, um, during this time, um, not well, it was just very new for me. But I, re- I had this moment where I, I just knew that if I didn't break up with him, I was going to be walking in disobedience. And I mm. just was so like, I was so grieved because I, I really cared about John Michael, but I was like, I can't, mm. I can't do this. And, um, I told John Michael that I said, I can't date you because I don't want to marry someone who's as selfish as you are. <laughs> awesome. That was like how she yeah, broke I up know. with you. That that is what worse. I know. That's what I said. Exact words. That's really what I said. <laughs> That's amazing. And so wow. I was. I, People say dagger to the heart. Yeah. This was a machete <laughs> yeah. to the heart. Yeah. I really like just gave it to you. So that was, um, that was at the end of our freshman year. And then um, my, like I, um, one of my closest friends 
was one of my sorority sisters. I like just went to her a ton just in that like aftermath of grief. And she was Catholic. And at the time in my faith, I, I'd grown up in the faith, you know, and, um, in the Protestant tradition. And I knew a ton of stuff and I felt like I was doing everything. I was like, I'm in a Bible study. I'm like, I have a relationship with Jesus I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible. Like I was doing everything I knew to do, mm. but my heart just like, I, I just kept feeling that feeling this urge in my heart of like, if Jesus is who he says he is, there just must be something like deeper for me. Mm. Um, I just like mm. felt this longing for more from Jesus. I was like, and I, and I was kind of confused. I was like, should I feel this way? This is mm. weird. Mm. And none of my friends really had that experience. They all mm. seemed kind of content where they were spiritually. And I just, I just kept feeling like Jesus, there had to be more. Hmm. I was like, if Jesus is, wants to be a part of my whole life and be my whole life, there just has to be something hmm. deeper hmm. for me. Um, like I just want more. Hmm. And so this friend of mine who I like just became one of my closest friends was Catholic. And the way she talked about Jesus, I was like, yes, that is what I want. And, hmm. um, so through my friendship with her, I was like actually really introduced to the Catholic mm. faith. Like I really, it really wasn't a big part of our relationship the first time we dated. It was really um, this friend that mm. showed me the church and um, answered my questions and was with me when I was like, really, when I cried because I was really scared of um, the questions I was asking and the answers I was finding in the Catholic church. And so... Um, I had it. I kind of my big thing, my big hinge was I think of hinge like a door, you know, like the big thing that was going to like either open the door for me or not about the church was like, what did the early church look like? And what hmm. did the early church fathers say about the Eucharist? Because I don't know, in my mind, I was like, I want they knew Jesus and um, or they were at least like one generation away from him. So the way yeah. they did things was, I was like, they got to know. Yeah. And so, um, I read a lot of early church fathers letters mm. and those were really, mm. really impactful in my conversion. Mm. And, um, that was kind of what opened the door for me. And so, um, I ended up converting two years later, lots of it had having to do with my family, just, mm. um, it was really difficult for them. And yeah. I really wanted to be respectful of them as I um, made that leap hmm. from being non-denominational my whole life to hmm. becoming Catholic, which, you know, pretty big leap. Yeah. So um, lots of it was just me trying to be respectful and generous to them and um, their experience with my conversion. So I converted to Catholicism in November of my senior year of college, who was one of the greatest days of my life. Um, and I think since then we, st well, obviously John Michael and I started dating again. Good thing. We're married. Um, and it was, it was very beautiful, very re redeeming when we began to date again. I think it's funny. Cause I'm like, if someone was dating the way we dated the first time, I would totally tell them to break up. Um, <laughs> I'm not recommending this as a, as a plan for people yeah. at all, but it's just really beautiful to see the way the Lord, like wove our brokenness mm -hmm. and allowed mm -hmm. us to meet him and then like re-encounter each other. Mm -hmm. Um, so after I knew I wanted to become Catholic, we began dating again. And, um, and it was what? crazy too, because yeah. 
she was going through her conversion to Catholicism. Yeah. While I was going through my conversion to Jesus, not knowing that either one of these things was happening to the other person. Huh. Yeah, as well. John Michael was simultaneously. Yeah. Four hours away. Yeah. I was in Dallas. She was in College Station. We weren't speaking because we were. It was over. It was done. Yeah. No, we were not. That's speaking. wild. I made sure. And then we came back together, <laughs> and we were like, "I was like, my life changed," and she's like, "You'll never believe how my life changed." And I was like, "What's she gonna say?" And then she's like, "I think I'm gonna become Catholic," and I was just like, "What?" <laughs> yeah. That is extraordinary. So it was. <laughs> yeah, it was just really beautiful to see, you know. Jesus really answering those deep desires mm. that I had for a greater intimacy with him through the Catholic church and through mm. a sacramental life mm-hmm. with him and of deeper prayer. Um, at the same time that Jesus was like really showing John Michael himself. And mm-hmm. so it was really, it was really special to begin to date again as mm. like two very different people, both being formed by Christ. Um, and then. We got married shortly after we well, I graduated, um, and then that was January of 2019. So, or yeah, almost almost two years ago. We've been married go. almost two years, um, and I mean, with my story, I feel like it's not like it doesn't end there. I'm like, uh, I just feel like Jesus has continued to show me more and more and more. Um, the places where I'm so attached to the way the world sees me, the way others see me. And, um, this like image I just desire to project to other people of, um, being beautiful of like, you know, being this missionary of, I don't even know, just different Catholic Instagram mom. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's definitely not me, but like, but still this like idea of like wanting to seem like this, like I have my life together and yeah. I'm, I like have this perfect house and like my hair always looks really good. And <laughs> I'm also a great wife and I also am you a missionary. Are. Thank you. <laughs> um, and here it's all captured on my like really nice edited Instagram, you know, but this idea of like <laughs> this perfect life that we yeah. want to have, it's kind of this, this, hmm. this marriage almost of like this, our, this secular, um, idea of Hmm. what's good and what's attractive Hmm. married to Catholicism. Hmm. And I'm like, what? And I just fall into that so much. And I'm just like, Hmm. you know, we, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. When we choose to follow Jesus, like, I don't know what he's going to ask of me. I don't know what he, what attachments I need to be that need to be like perched from my heart. Um, and so I think, yeah, no, you're totally right, John Michael. But so I think since being married, Jesus has really, um, I just have realized so much hmm. that I really don't love him like I, I say I do. And um, my journey with him continues to show me with John Michael as my husband and as we follow Christ together, um, how how I actually don't. It's easy for me to say I believe hmm. that I'm good and I'm a daughter, that I'm beloved, that I'm worthy. But like I just really don't live in that all the time. And I think since we've been married, Jesus has been drawing me out of self-condemnation even more mm. into more and more freedom. Mm-hmm. So that's that. Now we have a one daughter. She is 14 months old. Awesome. 
She is her father's daughter. <laughs> She's a big personality and dark hair like her daddy. And I'm pregnant with our second child. And he's due in two months. Two months. Yep. Amazing. So, I'm very excited. That's awesome. I don't want to cut you off. I have some follow-up oh, yeah. questions. No, that was yeah. it. That's okay. That was beautiful. That's great. Thank you. Very yeah. beautiful. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, one thing that caught my attention in your story was just uh, that question somebody asked you at camp that was just kind of like somewhat um, tactless, you know? Yeah. It was sort of like, do you even know the gospel? You know? like, <laughs> And uh, it's funny. It makes me th- – and kind of like – Almost as piercing as what you said to him when you broke up the first time, you know, like, uh, I'm not going to, you're too selfish for, for me today or whatever. <laughs> like, it's, fu- it's funny how Oof. I look back at my own life and, and some of the biggest turning points is when people were just like so blunt to me that they're just like, even if they do it without charity or without tact, yeah. like the fruit that can be drawn mm-hmm. from the sort of like, I don't know, utter, utter transparency sometimes um, is really great. So I don't know, that just caught my attention um, in your story. I don't know, maybe in your marriage, if you guys feel like you've, <laughs> you, you've sort of, uh, you've sort of grown, grown in your ability to just say things how they are more and more, but, but with charity, like yeah. um, you guys strike me as a couple that tries to, to do that. So I don't know if you want to speak into that at all. <laughs> I'm just laughing because I feel like I've had to learn so much. I mean, we've only been married almost two years. So like, yeah. it's not like I'm some marriage guru or anything. <laughs> um, but I think I've just had to learn so much of how I like when you're talking about being bold and speaking, I always tend toward being like, um, I always like let fear get in the way or, or <laughs> yeah, like fear of what people are going to say, or even just like, fearful of coming across too strong mm-hmm. get in the way of what I need to say or even in our communication I'm like it, it, it's been a real journey for me to learn how to communicate what I need and what's important to me and so for me whenever I'm really like bold about something I think or something I need I'm like yes it feels like such a win for me because yeah. it's not something I'm naturally um good at yeah yeah (laughs) it's definitely an area of growth for me but i think we're laughing because john michael and i really like we can be opposite on the spectrum of communication sometimes and i've I've learned a lot because (laughs) my you know methodology is strong i have very strong convictions i think that's a gift but i do not communicate them with gentleness nor charity <laughs> nor anything rel- related to those two things. And so I've learned, I've actually learned a lot from Emily about what it looks like to, mm. to love the other and to still communicate a strong conviction yeah. or a, yeah. a strong belief yeah. that I have Yeah, that I'm not willing to, I, I feel called to, to share, yeah. but I need to share it in a perhaps more charitable way. Yeah. 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 That's great. I have two two last questions for you Absolutely. guys. Yeah. So That's great. I think we have five minutes Good. each yep. for these questions. Um, one of them is I would love for you guys to just um, describe how you've tried to grow your mutual spiritual life, your mutual prayer life as a couple. 
As we were just kind of talking about this on the drive up here, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I think it's it's been it's been hard. Actually, it's been very difficult uh, for us because we, as missionaries, um, work for the church full time as a family, mm-hmm. and so it's it's very easy sometimes to to believe that we have a sort of spiritual intimacy together as a, mm-hmm. as a couple and as a family because we work for the church sure. as a family. Yeah. It's not just yeah. me who works for the church. Mm-hmm. It's not just her. It's our whole family. Yeah. Um, and so for example, we attend mass together every single day. Yeah. Um, and so people would look at that and perhaps say like, Oh, they have a great, you know, spiritual intimacy as a couple. And the truth is, is that, just because you sit next together at mass every day yeah. <laughs> does not necessarily mean that there's spiritual intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that we've had, it's been tough um, yeah. to, to see what that looks like. And at the same time to recognize um, each other's inherent differences mm-hmm. in how we relate to God. Yeah. Um, I relate to God as uh I think that perhaps the best example is St. Ignatius's meditation on Christ's army from the spiritual exercises. Hmm. I was going to say St. Nice. Ignatius. But so. that, that meditation, yeah. I think dis- I, I relate to that it. meditation. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So the, the meditation is basically um, kind of an image of Christ calling his army. Yeah. And there's two armies. There's the army of Satan. There's the army of Christ. And the army of Christ has the flags of, you know, faith, hope, and love, and, the, you know, that sort of military warrior. Intense. Missionary imagery. <laughs> Man, things. Let's go and fight for Christ. Yeah. Just that. <laughs> and that's the way I relate to God. Mission. Yeah. But yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. thing is, is when you, you cannot take that mindset into a marriage. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you can. You can. And I've yeah. tried, but it doesn't yeah. work. Yeah. And yeah. Emily relates to God differently. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, no, I definitely tend toward the more like Carmelite interior, um, interior prayer idea of spirituality and like, just like want to be contemplative and meditate. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's just like a different, I mean, you know, it's, it's all the way we relate to God, but it definitely is different between the two of us. And I Mm -hmm. think, I think, you know, we just had to learn and we're learning a lot. I think right now, I feel like this is kind of the area that we desire to grow in this year, honestly, is, um, like relating to God together as a couple, not just like me Hmm. talking about, Hmm. um, like, Oh yeah, this is like what, this is what, where Jesus is leading me in prayer. And John Michael's like, that's great. I love that. This is, you know, and him sharing similarly with me about himself. But I think, I, I'm really desirous. And I, I mean, we both are really desirous. I think this year of like, what does it mean figuring out and learning? What does it mean to come to the Lord together as a, as one Mm -hmm. in a marriage and relating to him as one and, um, with our family and especially as our family is growing and really going to change a lot. Um, so I think that's kind of, I don't know if I have an answer, but it's something we want to grow in and I'm excited to continue to grow in. That's great. I like to ask about that because I think a lot of married couples who really want to like pursue great holiness in their marriage, it's always sort of a, it's kind of a murky 
topic. It's like, well, we do have our own like individual prayer lives, which is good, but we also want to have something together. But what shape does that take? Or like, what do conversations about that look like? Or, you know, so, um, when you, when you hit the magic bullet, let me know. (laughs) But, uh, last question is just so, um, with your, your baby boy who's due mm-hmm. in a couple months, obviously, I just know from knowing you guys, you got a special diagnosis yep. a few few months back. Yep. So maybe, um, I think that would be a great witness to a lot of people, just sort of and an encouragement for people with, um, uh, I don't know, even outside of situations directly parallel to, mm-hmm. to that. So mm-hmm. just maybe, maybe speaking to that a little bit, what it's done for your 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 family for you guys as a couple yeah so about two months ago we found out um that our child he's a little boy his name is judah and we found out that he has down syndrome and so the past two-ish months we've been just kind of you know that's just going to change our family a lot and um but more than anything we're just, whenever I left the, okay, I'll, I'll kind of start over. Whenever I left the first appointment where they said that this could be a possibility, I was, I was by myself. Um, and it was a true grace of the Holy Spirit because it, it was just a grace from the Holy Spirit. And I will always, I think I'll, it'll be a moment that I look back on forever. I was leaving the waiting room at the doctor by myself. Like, oh my gosh, I'm about to go home and tell my husband that there's a possibility our child has special need. And I just had this deep grace in my heart that I really think was from our blessed mother where I just, I was just so at peace and I just kept thinking, Jesus is so good and gentle. Like Jesus is so good and gentle that if this is his will, it's going to be the, it, it, hmm. like that, that was all I could think of. And so hmm. when we found out, I think the chance I'm, um, we conceived this child when we were both 24 and the, um, the woman that told us about our diagnosis said that the chances of us conceiving a child with down syndrome, you know, the age that I am, were like one in 1500 or something mm. pretty crazy. And so yeah. we both felt very chosen mm. by God. Um, but at the same time, I don't think that lessens, you know, the realization of, all the changes and, Mm. you know, the things that are going to be difficult and, um, the sufferings that we're going to endure in some ways Mm -hmm. because our lives are just not going to look how we thought they were. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. John Michael, I would love if you added to to that. (laughs) That was great. (laughs) Yeah. I think, um, as we've processed through this, a couple, a couple things have come up and it's kind of good time. Cause we were just back in Texas with our family and friends mm. and mm. Yeah. talking mm-hmm. about Judah and his diagnosis and what that means. And, um, I, I'm, I'm more firmly convicted of the, the need to be completely countercultural mm-hmm. as we continue in our lives as a couple. And we've only been doing this for two years. But the witness has been absolutely astounding hmm. to to witness to God's plan for marriage yeah. through this. 
Um, and it feels like, and it's not like I'm like, I don't feel like some big hero or something. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> I really don't. It's like, yeah. Jesus is just giving us something and he's given us the grace to say yes. Mm-hmm. And now, like, here we are. <laughs> and I'm people. like, okay. Like, people are like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, yes. But at the same time, I'm just, I'm, I just really feel like I've just right. received the grace to hmm. accept what Jesus is giving. Yeah. So, anyways, I don't yeah. feel like, some yeah, it's hero. just like people, yeah. mar- married couples too, like, even our own families say, you know, you, there's no way that any other couple could handle this besides you guys, which I really appreciate that compliment. But the truth is, is that's just not true. Hmm. God's plan for marriage is that every family brings life into the world. And, and if that's biological, praise be, if it's spiritual life, praise be as well. But God's plan for marriage and for the way in which he desires to bring life into mm-hmm. the world is so perfect yeah. that everyone, it, there's nothing special about what we're doing. You know, people are like, oh my gosh, you guys have two kids by the time you're 24, one has Down syndrome. And it's like, yeah, it's it's awesome. And it might look <laughs> different. Yeah, yeah. But actually God's plan is that every family doesn't look like ours, but has yeah. the same at least openness yeah. to the life that he wants to bring. Yeah. And- you know, when you're open to life, and this is something that we've learned, when you're open to life, you're open to amazing amounts of suffering. Hmm. Families who are open to life have more miscarriages. Hmm. Families that are open to life have kids later in their marriage. And so there's obviously more risks associated with that. And then families that are open to life probably are going to have children with special needs mm-hmm. because it's a, you know, it's kind of a, a percentage game. And if you're having more kids, you have more chances of that. Yeah. And when you're open to life, you're open to God's plan is the real thing. And God's plan for our family is to have a son with Down syndrome. Yeah. And that's a beautiful plan. It's going to be really, really stinking hard. <laughs> um, and we, you know, can sit here all positive and ch- chirpy about it right now, but I'm sure in three months it'd be a different situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but God's plan for marriage is perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. I love that. Yeah. We we can long for the day where something like this is just sort of like par for the course. Like, right. like no nobody looks at it as like Uber. Right. Like it's just sort of of course we're gonna yeah. welcome whatever kids God Absolutely. gives us mm-hmm. and, and uh there's families all over the place that are well you know mm-hmm. ever ever there's a cross in every marriage. So yeah. Um and of course, this cross is going to bear a lot of fruit. I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, no, thank you guys for um, for sharing a little bit about that. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for asking us. It's important. I think that what do you think? that <laughs> I always have to get the last <laughs> word, and I need to work on that. <laughs> but just oh, man, we our culture, and we're a part of it. Just flees from any and all suffering. Mm, true. It's just true. What can I do to make myself? healthy, wealthy, and comfortable. Yeah. And having a child with Down syndrome is not comfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's just- I mean, I'm that way. We're all like that. We all yeah. want to be comfortable. Yeah. We all yeah. want to be healthy. We all want to be wealthy. But God's promise is, is just so much better than being healthy, wealthy, and comfortable. Yeah. So much better. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys for coming on the on the podcast. It's a privilege. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for having us. I this feel, is great. I feel honored. This yeah. is really great. On a podcast, jeez. 
it's not as glamorous as you might think. <laughs> Everyone's doing them these days. But uh, but no, awesome to have you guys. And um, yeah, for our listeners, yeah, offer up a prayer for John Michael and Emily and their son Judah. Everything goes well. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's all we have for now. So tune in next time to the City on Hill podcast when we interview some other awesome people or awesome individual and uh we will see you then bye-bye thank you for tuning in to this episode of the city on a hill podcast please subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and leave a review so others will come across our content if city on a hill has been a gift to you consider joining our mission by making a monthly gift learn more at kansascityonahill.org slash donate be your best and strive to be a saint